We'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We come to a text this morning that is full of encouragement. In the same way that the Apostle Paul uh, assures the believers that he writes to in his letters of who they are in Christ, John gives assurance to them in this letter in the midst of his warnings. And you can imagine that the people who are hearing this letter read, the people who are reading this letter of 1 John, at this point in the letter, probably could have felt a bit concerned, maybe even doubting their own standing before Christ. Do we, do we really know God? As we're hearing what John's writing, do we really know Him? But John writes here with love and reminds them of the blessings of grace that they have in Jesus. And so let's stand and follow along as I read 1 John chapter 2, beginning verse 12. I'm going to read through verse 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, your word is a gift to us. We would be completely lost apart from your word. You have taught us about yourself. You have taught us who you are and how loving and gracious you are, God. And so we praise you and thank you for it. We pray that you'd help us. Help us to have ears to hear today. Help us to be the good soil that receives the seed of your word and that it would multiply in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. In the first half of what we read in verses 12 through 14, John uses sort of a, a poetic and rhythmic way of giving assurance to those who are reading this, to those he's writing to. And in the section, there are some differing opinions as to what he's meaning. When he says little children and fathers and young men, who's he, who's he talking about there? There are some who, who say that those words are just interchangeable. He's just talking to everyone at all the points there. Three times he begins with, I'm writing to you, and then three times, I write to you. And he addresses them with endearment, little children fathers, young men. And so who are these people and what do these terms refer to? Who are the little children? Who are the young men? Who are the fathers? 
Well, it's not a distinction of age that he's talking about. He's not, he's not writing and saying, you who are literally little children, and you who are literally young men, maybe teenagers or early 20s, and then you who are literally fathers, older. What John's doing is addressing those who are of differing spiritual age, not literal age. And it's possible, maybe likely, some believe that when he says little children in this section, he's using it for everyone, just as he does through the entire letter. You look through the, the letter of 1 John, and again and again and again, he's referring to those who receive the letter as children or little children. So that's possible. It's also possible that he's writing to little children as those who have recently or newly come to faith in Christ. The things he says to them, the little children in this section, are certainly true of those who have first come to Christ and those who are older in the faith. And so it could be either fathers or those who have been Christians for a long time. Young men are those who have been Christians for a shorter length of time but have been walking with the Lord. Young men refers to those who are younger in the faith. Fathers refers to those who are spiritually mature. Now, we can understand the purpose of these distinctions, especially in the context of all that John is writing here. If, there, if there's going to be doubt in those who hear and receive this letter, if there's fear in them in regards to the things that John's written to them, those fears are going to be different, different based on how long they have walked with the Lord. It's important here that, that we that we recognize and know wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, whether you are or have been following Him for many, many years or a recent convert to Jesus, we are all prone to doubt. In different ways, in different depths, all of us at some point have or will doubt not at all necessarily doubting the grace of God, but ourselves. And John is so helpful here in this section to those who may be struggling. Verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Now, how wonderful. If there are any who are doubting, these are the exact words they need to hear and long to hear. If you are in Christ, if you are His child, your sins are forgiven. Literally meaning your sins have been already forgiven. In other words, your sins have been once and for all forgiven and will never be brought up before God again. That's amazing. That's why we, we should never, ever get used to singing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Because that is an amazing truth. For those of us who are in Christ, forgiveness of our sins is the one thing we have in common. Matthew 1.21 proclamation of Jesus' birth. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
God is faithful. Faithful to forgive all of the sins of those who trust in him. If you, be, if you believe, John is writing, if you believe, if you believe the things that I've written to you, that he is the one who is from the beginning, the one who is our advocate, our only possible advocate before the Father, the one who is truly the propitiation of our sins. If you believe, you are forgiven. That's why the, the Son of God came to this earth. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this truth that your sins have been once and for all forgiven and will never be brought up to God again, this truth, John writes, is for his name's sake. Their sins and our sins were forgiven because of what Jesus has done on the cross. It's so important We are forgiven on the basis of who he is and what he has done, what he has accomplished. His name represents his character, who he is, and he cannot lie. He never fails. And our sins, the scriptures tell us, and John writes here, are completely forgiven, past, present, and future. But not one single sin was forgiven on the basis of something that we did not because we believed hard enough, not because we loved better than others, not because we did anything other than trusting in all that Christ accomplished for us. We are forgiven, not because our character and reputation are pleasing before God, but because Christ's name is pleasing and acceptable before God the Father. John's saying your record is spotless, completely clean, and it will remain that way always because of Jesus, who he is and what he accomplished for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He goes on, I write to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. You know him. The longer that we live in relationship with Christ, the deeper and fuller we know him. That's what John is saying here. What a blessing for those, even in this room, who have walked with the Lord for many years, the majority of their lives maybe, and in this older season of life can say that they know Christ more deeply and better than ever before. And trust him. You know him. You know him who was from the beginning. Him who was from the beginning, that's Christ. That's what John refers to him as in verse 1 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning. Christ. It's the simple and yet profound truth John gives them here. You know Jesus. The one who existed from the very beginning, the one who always was and always is and always will be. You know him. And we should remember here, John's not saying that those who are spiritually mature 
know Jesus, and those who are less mature don't quite know him yet. All who are in Christ can have assurance that they know him, and even more, that he knows them. But there's a deeper understanding. There's a depth of relationship, a deeper knowledge of him by those who have matured and walked with him for many, many years. He goes on, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You've overcome. Now, how have they done this? Through the victory of Christ. Their victory in Christ. John's saying, to this point, you have fought a good fight. Now, continue. Keep going. In the strength of the Lord, keep going. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And he goes on, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. There's no greater knowledge than that. You know him. If you know him, you know that he's faithful, you know that he's trustworthy, and that you are safe and you are secure in him. In verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Again, you know him. John wants them to have this assurance. They know him with this intimacy that only comes with time. Now, John is repeating himself clearly here. You you ought to take note of that. If you're reading a section of Scripture, and in particular if it's a shorter section like this, and, and there's repetition that's taking place, a word or a phrase that's being said or written over and over, that, that means something. Okay? Note that. Lean into that. There's emphasis that the writer is making there on purpose. He's emphasizing it's a big deal. It should bring encouragement to those this is true of. You know God, the God of the universe. Lastly, he says, I write to you, young men, because, and he gives us three things, you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Those those who are younger in the faith, you're strong. You have strength you don't even realize. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working in you. And the same power, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, that raised Christ from the dead, that same power is working on your behalf. You are strong. And a reason for your strength is that the Word of God is in you. It remains in you. It abides in you. Because the Word of God is in them, there's there's strength there. There's hope there. They have His Word to guide them, to draw from it when they need it. If you have your Bibles open to 1 John, just turn a page back towards the front of your Bible. Just as a reminder, I know I have mentioned this many times throughout the years, but this is so important as we consider all that we have in God's Word. 
And just to summarize, in verses 16 through 21 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, Peter's writing, and he's, he's kind of giving a summary of what has happened earlier in his life when, when he walked physically on the earth with Jesus. And he's assuring them of what we have in God's Word. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, he's talking about Luke chapter 9, when they go to the Mount of Transfiguration, and it's James and Peter and John and Jesus who go up on the mountain. And as they're there, Jesus is transfigured before him. He's glorified right in front of their faces. And not just that, it, it says that a cloud descended and covered them. If you know about the Old Testament, you know that's a frightening thing because it represents the glorious presence of God. And as they're in this cloud, it says that the voice of God the Father spoke from heaven to them on the mountain. And Peter heard it, and James heard it, and John heard it. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Now that is life-altering. That's changing. That, that's a completely different circumstance than the other disciples who were down at the bottom of the mountain experienced. It's unimaginable. And so Peter refers to that unthinkable circumstance and then responds to it and follows it with this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. One translation says we have something more sure than that, the prophetic word. We take for granted all that we have when we open the scriptures. We have something more certain than Peter saying, I had this experience on the mountain. We have something sure. We have something faithful. We have something we can depend on. You're strong, John writes. You have the word of God in you. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Because the word is in them, they've overcome we need his word. We need it in us to guide us and help us. At this point in the letter, he transitions in verses 15 and following from this encouragement to a warning and reminder. If you remember verses 7 through 11 of 1 John 2, it discussed who must be loved. We are commanded to love one another. And then after the encouragement in verses 12 through 14 that we just looked at, he, he focuses then on what must not be loved, which is the world. Verse 
15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we ought to ask, what does John mean by world? Sometimes we talk about the world, and and we mean the earth, this planet that we are living on and breathing on right now. And that's not the meaning that John has here. And sometimes it's used for people. You may use world meaning people, like John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But that's not what he means here either. We know that we're called and commanded to love people, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. What John is referring to here when he says world is a worldview. One commentator writes this about the word and what John refers to as world here. As a whole, it is a realm that does not or will not recognize Christ and that despises people who follow Christ. It is worldliness. It refers to everything that opposes Christ and his work on earth. Don't love the world. We use the word love for pretty much anything, any kind of thing. We throw it around. I love pizza. I love you. I love football. I love shopping. I love being outside. And there's a spectrum of meaning, right? We don't mean the same thing when we say love in each of those things. You love someone romantically much different, I hope, than you love pizza. Someone may be thinking, well, that's debatable. There's commitment and time and of time and energy and even resources. A love requires commitment based on the various meanings. If you love the world system that John is talking about, that's where your time and resources will go. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Now, we know that there's nothing inherently evil about loving certain things that God has created in the world. But John's saying here as it relates to the world system, we should not love anything associated with the world's system. David Allen writes this, if we secretly grieve because we're not blessed with every earthly convenience or delight that others possess, we are loving the world and the things of the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And Jesus was clear on that, right? Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, he says. Some things are not compatible. They just don't go together. They don't work together. They don't fit together. Certain kinds of clothes are incompatible. Some things just don't go together, right? Right? I was a junior in high school in 1990. I know, 
You thought it was 2,000-something. I want to show you a picture from my yearbook, my junior year. That's me. I'm sorry. Man, the face expressions are just glorious. I don't even need to say anything about certain things not going together anymore because you can see. I don't want to spend the rest of our time But there's a turtleneck and a cardigan and a gold necklace. <laughs> so, pretty sure this is what John had in mind. You can take that away. Some things don't work together. They don't belong together. And that's exactly what John is saying at a deeper level here. It is impossible to love God and to love the world at the same time. And he gives three things, highlights three things that we ought to avoid. For all, verse 16, that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The desires of the flesh Desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Desire of flesh is a desire for anything that is contrary to God or His kingdom. It could be any number of things. The desire of the eyes means desiring what we see. It describes someone who is captivated by an outward show of materialism. Now listen, again, cars and clothing and positions of leadership or other desires of the eyes are not in and of themselves sinful, but the unreasonable desire to have what we see. The pride of life describes the arrogant spirit of self-sufficiency, the desire for recognition, applause, status, and advantage in life. It's the attitude of someone who refuses to, to rely on God and boasts in what he has seemingly gained himself. Those things, it says, are not from the Father. They are from the world. And it's amazing that these three things, which make such great promises to us, have been from the very beginning and at the same time have been defeated in Christ. If you go back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, then the woman saw that the tree was good for food. That's the desire of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes. That's the desire of the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That's the pride of life. And the rest of the story goes poorly. But thankfully, that is not the final storyline. These three weapons of Satan were overcome. They were defeated by Christ, the second Adam, in his temptation in the wilderness. If you remember Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, where it explains that the devil beckoned Jesus. Tell this stone to become bread, Luke 4, 3 says, which is the desire of the flesh. And then after that, 
showed him all the kingdoms of the world, Luke 4, verse 5, tempting Jesus with the desire of the eyes. And finally, from the pinnacle of the temple, Satan challenged him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will give his angels charge over you to protect you, and they'll support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. It's the pride of life, but in these things, Jesus resisted and trusted God and responded with his word. Was not led away. This Jesus who lived a life on our behalf has overcome. John says these, these things are not from the Father. They are from the world, and we ought not to love them. And he gives us a, another reason why, verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Those things are passing away with the world. The world and the things of the world are temporary. They are in a process already of passing away. They are headed for destruction, John says. They won't last. They are just as we are, as James writes, just a vapor. They're here and they're gone. There's no hope to be found in them. There's no hope offered in them. And yet, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Those things are passing away. But, but in Christ, those who are in Christ will live forever and ever and ever. It's the simple gospel verse of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, will not perish, will not pass away, but will have eternal life. Not so for those who do the will of God, he says. You will abide forever. If you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You know him who is from the beginning. You've overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You're strong. The word of God abides in you, and you will remain. You will abide forever and ever and ever with the one for whose namesake you were forgiven. All of this on the basis of his work on your behalf. Christ lived the life that we could never live, and he died the death we could never die. He took the punishment we could never take, all that we could be forgiven. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper. As they pass the bread and the cup out, I want to encourage you, if, you, if you're a visitor here or you've been here for a while, and you, you, you couldn't say, I know the Father. You can't say, my sins are forgiven because of, of a time where you have trusted in Christ and that you're following him. If you can't say that, I want to encourage you, as the bread and the cup are passed, just let them go by. This, this is something that we do in obedience to the scriptures that the Bible tells us is an identification with Christ and what he has done. And it's something we do in remembrance of what he's done. And, and 1 Corinthians 11 tells us it's something we do as a proclamation of what Christ accomplished, that Christ died, 
and that he was raised and that he's coming again. And so as the elements go by, those are just symbols. They're just reminders for us. The bread is a reminder of Christ's body that was broken for us, and the cup is a reminder of his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And instead of of taking those, I would encourage you to partake of him today, to trust in Jesus, to give your life to him, to surrender to him, and it would be true of you, your sins are forgiven. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're good and everything you do is good and we praise you for your word. We praise you that you have overcome the world and that our hope is only in you. We pray that you help us as we respond in singing to be glorified in it. As we take the bread and the cup that you be honored as we proclaim your death as we wait for your coming. In Christ's name, amen.